You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I've got a great guest. I've got Nick Zappa, a.k.a. Tink Tank. And Nick has done uh, some a lot of research into Azurius, and he's written a couple of articles that are up on his website. And we're going to discuss that. Azurius is a really, really popular locale of Dendrobates tinctorius. It was a while back, it was actually considered its own species, but that's since changed. And we're going to explore the history of the, spe- of the locale. We're going to explore some misconceptions about it and discuss uh, some of the, also some of the misconceptions about the different lines that are out there and available. But um, before we get into that, of course, I want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Great way to support the show, get the show out to a wider audience. Uh, a couple of people left a nice five-star review recently, but um, no comments. But that's totally fine if you guys want to just you know leave a nice review. I'm, I'm definitely not going to say no to that. Um, if you do leave comments, I like to give people a shout out, but you know no big deal. I always appreciate the uh, you know always appreciate the nice reviews. And uh, another great way to support the show is to become a patron on Patreon. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Justin, who just recently upgraded his membership to a $5 membership, and I wanted to give him a shout out. So Justin, thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your patronage. So if you guys want to do all that, support the show by becoming a patron. Uh, If you're interested in getting some Amphibicast merch, I've got t-shirts and whatnot, stickers, all sorts of cool stuff for the summer. And I've also got a link to In-Situ Ecosystems. If you're interested in buying an In-Situ Ecosystems vivarium, you get a 10% listener discount just by making the purchase through the link in the description. And uh, you'll get 10% off the top right away. Small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you. So that's another great way to support the show. And in the link tree, you also find a link to support Panamanian frog conservation. I recently included that, and it's a great way to kind of give back and support conservation. Uh, So click on that link. Everything is available in the link tree. It's the single link in the show description. It'll take you to everything for the podcast. So other than that... um, Nick, thanks for, um, we actually, this is actually round two, actually. We, we started off earlier and we had to, uh, we had to come back at it, but thank you for, uh, coming on the show tonight. How are you doing? Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's my pleasure. So Nick, before we get into the, the papers and everything about Azurus, why don't you tell us about yourself? What, how did you start out with, with dark frogs? Like what, 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 uh, what, what got you into it? So the first thing that drew me into dart frogs, well, I've always been an amphibian nut, catching toads and stuff around my house growing up. But um, about 10 years ago, well, probably more than 10 years now, but when I was when I was really little, um, I just went to a movie theater, and afterwards there was a pet store next door. And afterwards, when we went to the pet store, there were three dart frogs there. There was an Azurius, a Neurotis, and a Leucomelis. And of course, immediately my eyes were drawn to Azurius. It wouldn't be for many years after that that I'd actually finally be able to keep dart frogs once I had the money and the know-how and um, the responsibility to be able to take care of them. And then I've been hooked on Tinctorius ever since. Yeah, Tinctorius has always been a favorite species. It's not the first species that I started out with. I actually started out with um, I actually started out with Phylobase. I started out with Bicolor was the first species that I ever had, but... Yeah, they're a real crowd pleaser, especially Azurius. Was there anything particular about Azurius? I mean, other than the fact that it's like this gorgeous bright blue, but anything else about them that attracted you to them? Um, I don't know. I think it was mainly the color at first. And of course, it was a froglet. So I'm like, wow, that's so cute, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, being poison dart frogs, I'm like, wow, these things live in the rainforest. And they, you know, no one can touch them out there. And they're just living the living the dream out there i don't know they just all fat everything about them fascinated me 
Yeah, they've got that that allure. And the pet store that you saw them in, do you recall how they were set up at the time? I and mean, was it set up on par with what we kind of expect to see today? Oh, it was terrible. It was like a, <laughs> it, was, it was like one of the smallest sizes of Exoterras. I don't know what the smallest size is. What is it, like a 12 by 12? It was like smaller than that even. It was super tiny and it just had like the generic foam background with like some coconut fiber substrate. And the poor animal was like crawling all the way up to the top by the screen and hiding, trying to hide between the glass and, and the screen. Like right up there where there's like a little little nook right above the background. That's where it was trying to hide. But um, I did get one a couple years after that. It didn't live for very long. Um, I think it was at the same pet store, actually. But at the time, man, I didn't know what I was doing at all. I was keeping it on frog moss. And that stuff, like it's like this green moss, but it tends to smell like sewage. Um, my supplement game was not on par at the time. And I think it actually passed away from a seizure. Because when I would feed it, it would kind of stretch out. And like it looked like it was dead, but it would, it would get back up eventually. It, it didn't. It wouldn't eat real well. And then eventually I just found it like that again. But I think it was having seizures probably because of calcium deficiency. Yeah, some of that, those neurological um, uh, symptoms, I know that, I mean, there's a whole different number of causes for them, but um, I know that there's been um, nutritional defense, uh, deficiencies that have been implicated in that and a couple of other things. I it, it, Honestly, I've only seen it happen with Pamilio, but I have heard about it happening with um, malnourished and generally unhealthy um, Dendrobates species. Yeah, every once in a while, I'll have a one froglet that doesn't thrive real well. But I've got some calcium gluconate on hand, and I always separate it. And um, I actually give my froglets now that I raise up. I give them – so I do use Rapashi, but I use, um, like, RepCal, like the old-fashioned stuff. That has a lot of vitamin D in it, and it's, like, basically pure calcium other than the vitamin. So the froglets do well when I add that to the routine. Which species are you working with now? Are you just working with Azurius or other locales as well? Uh, just Tinctorius. I do have Yellowbacks, Regina, Citronella, um, Katara Rivers. That's another love of mine. I'm going to be doing some articles on them. Um, what else? Green Cephalowini, True Cephalowini, Mateco, um, and a couple other ones I'm raising up. How are you rearing them? You do an individual, communal, or what's your setup like? When it comes to tadpoles, I do communal. Um, I, I just have them in large tubs filled with water, and I actually don't use any kind of black water extract, and I hate Indian almond leaves. So I just use live oak leaves, and that adds tannins to the water, and the leaves, they last a longer time in the water. And I can actually do multiple batches of tadpoles with the same amount of leaf litter. You know, they do break down over time, and then I just replenish leaves. And I'm feeding them New Life Spectrum. It's a powdered food. Yeah, the the live oak and the magnolia, uh, I, I use the Indian almond leaves just because they they tend to just kind of crumple up and disintegrate, um, which is their, the good and the bad about them. I mean, you're right, the uh, the live oak and the magnolia do last a lot longer. I've just found that mine tend to seem to graze better off of the, um, off of the Indian almond. They seem to prefer that, but at the end, it's it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, as long as it tans the water. But 
Do you yeah, use- I do add when I when I do a water change, I will add like a quarter of an Indian almond leaf. But I like to add like actual leaf litter so that way the tadpoles can hide away from each other. Do you use RO water or tap water or what? No, just just tap water. So I'm on a well, so I don't have to treat it or anything, and they do real well. Do well on that. Except when I've gotten tadpoles from other people, I can't raise tadpoles that I get from other people. I think it's something to do with my water. Like my tadpoles are adapted to my water, like right out of the clutch. But then with other people, I'm guessing they probably use RO water. And then when I transfer them to my tap water, they don't seem to like that very much. You know, get get a get a water test of your well. I mean, where I where I live, we're on different municipalities have um, have different water sources, but it all kind of comes from the same place. But I know there can be some differences in in well water in terms of like water hardness and mineral content and and all sorts of stuff. So I mean, it it, it may be, yeah, it may it may be affecting um you know affecting your tadpole garage if you're getting them from other people and not doing well in your water. There may be something going on. I think it's just because of the way the tadpoles are adapted to like my my water is fine. I don't have any health issues with my tadpoles. I, I really think it's just an acclimation thing. Adapting to the hardness of the water. But yeah, I am going to probably do a water test, but I don't even buy tadpoles from anybody anymore. I'll take them if I'm like gifted tadpoles, but I don't, I don't really like buying tadpoles. It's just not, not for me. Yeah. People tend to go one way or the other about it. I've never actually bought tadpoles myself, but just, I don't know. It just kind of never really was a thing for me, but I know some people who've done it with success, some people who haven't, but I guess it's one of those personal preferences. Yeah, maybe somewhere down the line I'll refine what I'm doing. I also would, when I would get tadpoles from other people, I, d- I did it a little bit differently from the way I actually raised my own tadpoles. Because when I get it from other people, I try to do it individually. And I actually suck at raising tadpoles individually, apparently. And when I do it individually, they don't have, you know, air circulation. But in my tadpole setups, I just have an air stone. No, no sponge filter or anything. It's literally just an air stone in the water and it does circulate the water and aerate the water. And I feel like that's important. I can't imagine going back to raising anything other than communal. It just more and more people are doing it now. And it just seems to be, I mean, it's, it's easier. And at least in my, my opinion, my experience, I think it's more effective. I think you just get, you get better. I mean, you might not get as many, but you, you get better, more, um, like more like robust, froglets at least in my yeah, they're experience bigger. yeah they're like monstrous <laughs> it, it it was a learning experience because i've had had have had some issues when i've switched up my foods i've used i would get a little bit of some fighting going on when they fight they go immediately for the eyes so i've produced a few frogs that are missing an eye still healthy frogs i usually just give those away with some of their siblings i just want them to go to a good home but that i have eliminated and it's because of the food I have a feeling when I was using pellet foods, I don't, I don't think the tadpoles can see very well. Cause like I would watch the tadpoles and they would like accidentally find one of the pellets that I'd put in there versus when I would put powder at the top of the water column, they could just go up to any point in the water and start grazing off the surface of the water. Just, I don't know, just some oddball thing about them, I guess. And with soil and green, that tends to break up in the water. I tried that. A lot of people use soil and green, but I don't, I don't like the way it fouls my water. But I feel like the way it breaks down, um, 
is beneficial for the tadpoles. I've done it both ways. I've used the Soylent Green in the gel form where I just make like a little, I have these little condiment cups that hang around the house and I'll make up like a small batch that's maybe about the size of a silver dollar and maybe about like half an inch thick. And I'll maybe break that into smaller pieces or whatever and I'll put like one of those in. And they're usually on it pretty quick. But I found that when I sprinkle it in, that's when it really seems to make more of a mess. That That's when it really turns, like everything turns green. So I've had better results with yeah. just that solid little chunk. I really like the New Life Spectrum Grow formula that I'm using. So I don't think I'm going to switch from that. It's definitely different from soil and green in powder form. I believe when they make the New Life Spectrum, they actually pellet it first. And then they essentially regrind it down. And so it actually keeps the particles kind of together. So it's still a well-mixed formula versus with Rapashi. It's literally just combines all the ingredients and mixes it up. But the, the particles can separate once they hit the water column. Trying to describe that well. Yeah, no, no, no. I can, I can picture it. It's, uh, it's funny because everyone has their own way of doing things. And I feel like as long as it works out well for you, then then go for it. I don't, I don't think that there's one perfect, perfect method. I mean, it's funny because like, even what you mentioned about the, you know, the, the, the water quality and, um, you know, like tadpoles going for like the, their eyes and whatnot. I had my own weird experiences happen with my epipedobates that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And it's funny because people were doing, I was doing what other people were doing and they were having good results and I wasn't. So I changed my routine around and I got good results. So, I mean, water supply to water supply, nutrition to nutrition, species to species, individual to individual, it all seems to vary. And I guess as long as you can get it, you know, to a point where you're happy on your end, then, you know, it really doesn't matter how you do it. Yeah. 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 So tell us about, these papers that you wrote, I, well, first of all, what gave you the, the idea to start researching Azurius and how did you go about sourcing all this information? So that's actually a very good question. So I kind of get into not really arguments per se online, but when it comes to the aspect of inbreeding in the hobby. So my history article actually is the result of my interest in actually tracking down truly unrelated lines of Azurius. Because you'll go out there and you can find a, you know, Azurius at any random reptile show, at any random pet store. And most of the time, they're like unknown lineage. We have no clue like what's behind them. And my theory is a lot of them are probably just from Josh's frogs. And that's also why I wanted to know exactly where they're from so I could eliminate from Josh's frogs. Which tends to be where everyone gets them from, and that's fine, where everyone gets their frogs. But if everyone's getting their animals from one source, over time, that's going to really decrease the the gene pool in the hobby. And so I would actually track down some of the people that have been in the hobby for decades. And I would, you know, immediately go to them and just start asking them questions about Azurius and if they were still keeping Azurius and how long they're keeping Azurius. And then it just it just snowballed from there. They'd start giving me names. And then I'd go and I'd track down that person and corroborate what they said and get their side. And then I get more names or something like that. And I would, it, was, it was like constantly searching around for different people, tracking down frogs that I could add to my gene pool. That's different from everyone else's. But also, I just 
decided to start tracking the history and writing it down because it just started fascinating me. And I feel like as these people leave the hobby or they pass away, this information can get lost. So I wanted to keep it around and not just hold it all to myself. I wanted other people to enjoy it as well. Yeah, Azurius is one of those species that just, it has this mystique around it and it's always been this highly coveted locale. But, I mean, people could lose interest one day. You know what I mean? And they might just disappear out of the hobby or, you know, like you said, they could become so saturated that you're not even going to know what you have, especially if they're coming from a really, really large vendor. Yeah, like some, some Azurius out there could be like F20s at this point. And tradition goes when someone gets tinctorious, they buy four or so from one breeder. They raise up a pair and they sell the others. Well, that's siblings at that point. And they'll produce babies and sell it off to someone else who will likely do the same exact thing. And the next thing you know, we got, you know, 20 generations of inbreeding going on. And that can't be good for the animals, especially for Azurias, where we're not, I'm not going to say it's never going to happen, but. Most likely, we're not going to be getting new genes for a long, long time. And we need to do the best with what we have around. And that's what I intend to do when I breed my Azurius. So I actually have eight different pairs from, I'll say, seven and a half different lines. And my intentions moving forwards is, as I produce young, is rotate the males. So that way, one year, if someone buys Azurius from me, they're getting one genetic makeup. And then let's say in, in a year and a half, they're ready to breed, but they need a male. And they get some from someone else who also happened to get some from me, except it was from another year. I can almost guarantee they'll be unrelated. And that's my intention, is to at least keep the vigor going in the hobby for Azurius. So where did you source your lines from? Anyone in particular? Um, I don't really want to name names right off the bat, because some people don't want to be named, but one guy I got him, I got some from. So I have F2 Watley line Azurius, which is just amazing to me that F1s are even still alive. But I believe those animals would have been born in 95 or 96. And the F1s are still around. And what's interesting is that someone who worked for Marcus Brees at SNDF, and he actually got the pair that Marcus was working with when he when he moved back to California. And so he actually, I don't think he's bred his pair for many years until I got them. But that's where I got my Watleys from, is from this guy. He had actually written some articles in some of the, the newsletters. So he's been keeping dark frogs for a long time. Um, he also had a, the same per, per person that I got my Watley Azarius from. He also had animals from Dale Bertram. So back when Dale Bertram was so Dale Bertram was the first guy in the United States to be breeding Azurius. And so he actually got this guy got my Azurius from he actually got some of the first Azurius that Dale Bertram was selling. And he's down to like the second generation off of his original pair from Dale Bertram. So I got some of those as well. But I can keep going on and on and on, but I got lots of interesting Azurius. All of their unique stories behind them. Yeah, it's one of those things where you don't really appreciate i mean you take it for granted you don't really appreciate the extent to which genetics and you know how different collectors and how different people 
created all these lineages because i mean on its face most of them really just you know they look like blue frogs but there's so much more to yeah. them yeah a lot of them look the same and what's also interesting to me is i guess we can get into it when we get into the myth of the fine spot azurius but i can already kind of see with a lot of azurius out there oh they're all starting to look the same and that's kind of when people stop appreciating azurius and for me also, even if a lot of them look the same that I have, you know, they all look different with their patterns. But even if they all look very similar, their history is what fascinates me and how they're unique. Their bloodline is unique. And that I feel like that makes me value them a lot more than the average person who just has some unknown Azurius, which I have a couple unknown Azurius as well. And those, those are important for genetics. But... Yeah, just all all of Azurius fascinates me. Why don't you walk us through the the timeline? I mean, I've got the paper in front of me. Um, it's uh, well, let me just read the title for everyone. It's it's Azurius History of the Poison Dart Frog Icon, and uh, you wrote this in April of 2020. You start off in the late 60s, early 70s. Do you want to kind of start us off at the beginning and then from there bring us up to modern times in terms of how? Azurius made its way into the hobby and then perpetuated? Sure. So in 1968, that's when a scientist named Dr. Marinus Hugmid, that's when he first discovered Azurius. And there's actually an article, a paper you can find online that documents the original journey of finding Azurius. And he didn't even believe it at first when he finds these blue frogs. But when he revisited the Cipollowini savanna two years later in 1970, that's when they actually collected some specimens. Um, so they co- they collected you know the type specimens in 1968. That's when they put them on. I think it's ethanol or something. It's some, it's some kind of chemical bath that they put it in to preserve the specimen. But the specimen's not alive. And so in 1970, that's when he collected live specimens and he brought them back to a fellow named Polder, Wilder Polder, who was in the Netherlands. Um, and so they stayed alive for several years, and Holder reproduced them for several years. However, they all died of a sickness at some point, around 1973 and 74. Now, from my research, I was trying to figure out if those genetics from Polder had an impact on the Azurius we see today. Now, I believe it's possible. However, I was not able to actually track down and say for sure that those actually contributed to the genetics of Azurius in the hobby. So at this point, I'm left to say they probably did not have an impact on the genetics in the hobby. Eventually, later on, Polder will get more Azurius. Um, I don't think I actually figured out when Polder got new Azurius. It might have actually been around 81 as well. But apparently in 81, um, people in Germany and the Netherlands were getting Azurius. And I have some photos on my article of a lot of the original specimens. And that was one of the things I wanted to do with my articles was find actual photographs of these founder specimens. So that way we can compare later on down the line, our Azurius we're keeping, how they compare to the founder animals. And so Martin Haberkern, who's in Switzerland, he got, um, I believe it was four pairs of Azurius when they first came in in 81. And he reproduced a lot of Azurius and made their ways into a lot of zoos over in Europe. Um, then in 82, that's when 
Matthias Nellier in Germany. He was the first one to start distributing Azurius around in Germany. And Germany is an interesting one. I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information coming out of Germany for Azurius. It's possible there were a lot of Azurius that um, were smuggled into Germany, and I can't find any information on them. However, another theory that I, I believe more is that really Matthias Nelly in 82, he was the founder stock of Azurius. He, I don't think a whole lot more Azurius came into Germany because one rumor I heard just a couple of years ago was that Sean Stewart was exporting a lot of Azurius over to Germany. And apparently the stock over in Germany wasn't real healthy or wasn't really thriving. And it would make sense if they weren't thriving, if, they were, if in Germany they were just from the stock from 82. <laughs> so they were going probably for like, 25 years just off of like two Azurius founders, which would be crazy to me. Um, in 83, there were 40 offspring of Azurius documented in a by CITES, and those are produced by Polder. Um, and then this fellow named Tonda Leaf Day would acquire several of the animals from Polder, and that's when Eric Wevers would acquire his in 84. And Eric Wevers is he's the founder of. Um, Dendrobatidae Nederland in 89. So it's like a group of Dendrobatid aficionados in the Netherlands. And Eric Wevers was one of the first people over, probably in the whole world, keeping dart frogs as a hobby. And once other people's Azurius started to pass away from random sicknesses, he would become the only person in the world with Azurius, other than a few I tracked down later on, like possibly Martin Haberkern and then. Martin Haberker in Switzerland, and then the Baltimore Aquarium, they were keeping Azarius at that point. Um, also, what was interesting to me is in 88, there were three animals confiscated in the Netherlands, and then those were transported to the Rotterdam Zoo. So the Rotterdam Zoo had three Azarius that were confiscated, but also that same year in the ISSD newsletter, there were pre-orders for wild-caught Azurius from an importer. And I don't believe those actually came into the US. And I often wonder if they're coming from the same person that those confiscated animals came from. And possibly those three animals that went to the Netherlands were originally probably going to end up in the US. Um, in 89, now is the first year that Azurius were legally imported into the United States. Oftentimes online, when we get into the at the topic of illegal frogs, you know, particularly animals from Brazil. People like to draw comparisons to Azurias and start saying that they are, in fact, illegal. But that is not true. There are several bloodlines of Azurias in the hobby that are perfectly legal. I even have a copy of the CITES document for Dale Bertram's importation of Azurias. So I can prove, essentially, in the court of law, that these Azurias were 100% legally imported. And that's really interesting to me because most people wouldn't know that. They're just operating off of rumors that are on Dendrobor. Um, and then Dale Bertram, he produced Azurias for several years under the name Blue Frog Emporium. Um, in 92, so originally the Baltimore Aquarium acquired around 20 founder Azurias in the 80s. But they wouldn't start breeding them until 87. 
And by that point, they are down to a single male and three females. So they started breeding them and building up a gene pool. And that's also around the same time they started exchanging stock with, with hobbyists. So Jack Cover actually flew to the Netherlands and he exchanged animals with Eric Wevers. And well, he, he went there to acquire several different bloodlines, but a lot of them came from Eric Wevers. And so the stock from the Baltimore Aquarium, their old stock, is a mixture of their original founder animals and animals from Eric Wevers in the Netherlands. Then later on in in 98, 97, that's when Baltimore Aquarium would acquire Azorius again. But it's believed that none of the animals co- collected, that most people compared to when they hear NIB, NIB Azorius, they think it's the animals that were collected in 97. But that's not the case. The animals that were collected in 97, I don't believe ever made their way into the hobby. So the animals that are called NIB line in the hobby are actually the Azurius from the old stock that the Baltimore Aquarium was working with. So those would be the animals from Eric Weber's and their original male and three females. Um, 93 is when Jack Watley imported around 40 to 50 animals. Rumors would always say that they were hidden in a shipment of fish. But at the time, Azurius was, you know, its own species. However, he imported them as Dendrobates tinctorius. So that's a gray area, but they were improperly labeled when they came into the country as Dendrobates tinctorius. And of course, people back then wouldn't really know the difference. Um, Jack Wally himself kept about two pairs, three or four pairs. Um, so it's interesting when I see people selling Wally Azurius, how many of those are from the same exact pair? And so that when I when I have my own, I have several different Watley lineages, and one came from one gentleman who you know got his from Marcus Brees that Marcus Brees originally got from Jack Watley, but then there was another guy who got them directly from Jack Watley, and so I'm guessing if he had three or four pairs, chances are these are unrelated. It would be interesting to do a genetic study and see exactly how related they are. But I operate them as two different lineages, even though they came from Watley, so they're still Watley line. Um, there are also animals coming in from Holland by a guy named John Uhern. So from 95 up until 2003, he was importing Azores from them. Surprisingly, not, not many people. I haven't been able to find anyone who still has animals from John Uhern. So it'd be interesting to find out exactly how many John imported. I have not been able to find that information. And then Ian Hiller, who um, he worked for the Aquarium of the Americas. He passed away several years ago, but he had imported Azurius from the Stuttgart Zoo in Germany through a zoo exchange. So those were some of the first Azurius floating around in the hobby as well, around 95. Um, 2001 is when Mark Pepper of Understory Enterprises bought out a, a collector's whole collection who had Azurius, and that's where the Understory line of Azurius originated. And it is believed those came from an exporter in Florida, which would probably be traced back to Watley. And that's why Mark Pepper believes his animals are in descent from the Jack Watley import. And Understory would export to the United States and elsewhere starting in 2003 and then onwards. In 2007, that's when 
some of the first offspring from the Baltimore Aquarium were imported into the Netherlands. Now that's interesting to me because if this is 2007, chances are this is what I call the new NIIB stock, which is a stock they collected in 97. Now, according to their agreement with the Suriname Forestry Service, they're not allowed to they're not allowed to just sell offspring to anybody. And any offspring that they give to someone is supposed to accompany with paperwork that says they're property of the Suriname government. So if these animals in 2007 were from the new NAIB line, that would mean they could be the new NAIB stock. Is possibly in the hobby, but due to the paperwork, I'm always in question whether or not they would be legal or not if they were from the new NIB. And Jack Cover, who worked at the Baltimore Aquarium, he was very he was very persistent when he would say they would they were not allowed to sell stock from their, those pairs. So it's kind of left a question about what exactly that NIB stock is in 2007, and we may never know unless the person who actually did it were to come forwards person that actually sold the stock to the hobbyists over there um dutch rana in the netherlands they imported azuris from one of Star enterprises in 2009 and 2018 and that's about it for my article there's a few bits and pieces i'm still working on because there is an old gentleman he's the first person to brought azurius into the United States, the first wild caught specimens. However, he's kind of hard to get in touch with. <laughs> and I can only get in touch with him via the telephone because he lives in Florida. But there is there is more bits and pieces of information that'll be added to the article as I am able to actually lock down specific facts. It's interesting how it's a a back and forth between the United States and the Netherlands, it's it's funny because you've got. You, you, I guess we we kind of think when you when you know, when you have a fresh import that you're automatically getting new blood. When in reality, you might not be. You might just be getting an import of what you exported a few years ago. So, yeah, yeah. The, the Netherlands was a big player in Azurius in the beginning, and of course, Doctor Hoogmit, who who first described Azurius, he's also from from the Netherlands himself. He lives in Brazil now, but he came from the Netherlands and that's how the Netherlands first got their animals was through him. How did you find about, uh, find out about the, the documentation from Suriname? That's, I mean, obviously you know more about this than I do, but that's interesting. I never even realized that, um, Suriname put some sort of a caveat that, um, they weren't to be sold. How did you come across that paperwork? That is specifically for the Baltimore Aquarium. Uh, so the Baltimore, the Baltimore Aquarium with Jack Cover, they had to, they had to negotiate with the Suriname Forestry Service in order to go there and collect the the specimens. Because at the time there were rumors that the whole area that Azorius lives went up in flames, and so they were worried that they went extinct. And so that's when they scheduled an expedition to go investigate if they're still there for one. And the next year, after discovering, oh, they're still there, they're fine. They went back, and then that's when they had gotten permission to collect that, collect a certain number of specimens. But they did come with that paperwork that they were not allowed, that they were property of the Suriname government. And that was directly what Jack Cover told me. I do not have copies of that paperwork, 
And I don't even think the Baltimore Aquarium still has that paperwork because he, he himself says that they're not maintaining that line anymore. However, when I questioned him further about that, what he meant is they've been they've been bred with other Azuria stock. So their genetics still exist, but not pure like the hobby tends to do, you know, breeding siblings together. And they say, oh, this is these animals are from that line. That's not what the Baltimore Aquarium does. You know, it's funny because I, I went to the Baltimore Aquarium a lot when I was a kid. I had family that lived just outside of Baltimore and it was, the aquarium was just on incredible. And I never really paid attention to the dart frogs when I was a kid. And it's funny because if I had, I would have actually seen the display animals for this during this whole period. But uh, I guess I can't have a time machine. I'm just curious though, but before I, I wanted to ask this question before I forget, but I've heard from a lot of people that the original Azurius that entered the hobby, I believe these might have been specimens that were at the National Aquarium in Baltimore, were a lot larger than what we commonly see today. Did you come across any information about differences in size regarding Azurius back then as opposed to more recently? I have heard other people mention the same thing you said. However, I have not heard that mentioned specifically about Azurius in general. I have thought a lot about that because I have my own wild-caught animals, and they're pretty huge. But I think the big difference is we're talking people who are in the hobby and for three years or less. And so most likely their animals are three years old or less. And, you know, these are still young animals at that time, being only two years old maybe. And so there's a big difference between an animal that's 15 years old coming out of the wild versus an animal that's only two years old. And, you know, the diet is different. Feeding only fruit flies does not replicate the full, all the protein that they're getting in the wild. Because insects in the wild will be higher in protein and lower in fat. And the fruit flies that we're feeding is likely twice as high in fat as the, as the insects are getting in the wild. So it would make sense to me if our animals are not as big as they would be in the wild. Plus, we get into the topic of vitamin D. Nutrition is another passion of mine, so I can I can talk about that forever. But there's a lot of aspects that go into it, from my understanding, that would explain why wild-caught animals might be bigger. However, I don't believe it is a significant difference for Azurius, from what I have seen. Yeah, the pictures of wild Dinger based tinctorius that I've seen, they're they're huge, and it's it's funny because we think that we automatically overfeed our animals in captivity, and a lot of people will say, "Oh, that frog looks like it's obese." Well, if you compare that with a wild caught, or a, I should well, I should say in the field. I don't know. I mean, if it if it's imported, it might lose some weight. But the photographs that I've seen of frogs in situ, they're like they're they're beasts. They're like golf. They're like golf balls with legs. And the yeah. ones that we see in, in collections, they seem to be a little bit rangier. There's 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 more of a variation, you know what I mean? Other than a sick frog, every picture that I've seen recently of wild dendrobates, tinctorious anyway, they've been a lot more visually impressive than that you'd see, even the color-wise, than what you typically see in, yeah. in, in private collections. Yeah, I have a wild-caught female citronella. And she is comparable in size to a terribilis. That's how big some of the wild-caught animals can be. But they're also grazing 24-7 in the wild. 
versus our animals in captivity. They're not getting that. And plus, they're only getting one food, which is a big difference. They're not getting the benefits. So, you know, fruit flies only have one amino acid makeup. You know, the ratio of amino acids, the essential amino acids. And in the wild, they're getting a whole bunch of different insects, and they're all complementing each other. So they're getting probably a better diet in the wild than we're giving them in captivity. Oh, that's without without question. I I had uh, a guest by the name of Juan Santos on a while back, and Juan, that was a great episode. I mean, uh, the audio, I wish the audio was a little bit better, but um, Juan went on and on about the different things that these. I mean, they're eating everything, and they're eating constantly. So you're right. It's they're they're grazing. They're just consuming food all the time, and a substantial part of their diet is actually mites, believe it or not. So. Yeah. We're not, no matter what we try, we're still not even coming close to that. And and another guest, I was um, uh, Josh from uh, Muddy Boots Peru. He he was telling me about some of the deposition sites for just some of the different frogs that he would run into in Peru. And he said like, the insect diversity that, like the dead insects that land into these little holes and these things that are like, filled with water and tadpoles. The tadpole diet is so so incredibly varied even compared to whatever media or food that we're feeding them it's it's nothing compared to what they'd eat in the wild because they're so generalist yeah i've also even read some articles where um, researchers have cut open and inspected what is actually in the gut contents and they've documented leaf matter which is interesting and i i thought about that for a while why would there be so many leaves in the diet of these frogs they're probably eating leaf cutter ants because those are pretty common in south america so they're probably eating these little ants carrying leaves on their back it's just interesting to me yeah it could be it could be anything i mean if you like a lot of people don't realize like what what i do and I, the, the biggest frogs i've had i'll take a, a like an, an older culture like an older fruit fly culture and I'll just put it in the tank and let them finish it off. I mean, it, it it's not the visually the most pretty thing in the world, but they'll pick at this thing for over a you know, week, two weeks, eating the maggots, eating the mites, eating the flies, and then whatever else gets in there, springtails, and I'm sure there's other little teeny organisms that we don't see. And those are the frogs yeah. that seem to put on the most weight. Like if I want to get a frog to put on weight, I'll just leave an old fruit fly culture in there, even without the flies, and they'll they'll just fatten up and they'll stay fattened up. Yeah, the frog grazed 24-7. Yeah. I, I, I want to get into the Watley line now because that was your second article on your on your webpage. Can you give us a little bit of background about the Watley line and some of these misconceptions that you found out in, your, in the course of your research? So the biggest misconception is that the Jack Watley line is, is line bread. Because, you know, Jack Watley, he's known for discus. However... He he definitely was known for his discus, and he bred a lot of discus. However, he really didn't breed a lot of dart frogs. And he only produced F1 Azurius for a limited amount of years. Um, and so I have posted on my article online photos of animals that look like the Wally line photographed in the wild. So we know for a fact these animals that look like the Wally line are in the wild. They're like virtually patternless even patternless animals they'll have a few very tiny spots if you look closely because all the Watley line specimens i've showed so far if you look closely enough there'll be a few spots here and there um but 
when he imported them, according to the people that I have talked to that knew him at the time, the best explanation we have for how his animals look like that, he definitely didn't line breed them. And if we assume he didn't line breed them, that leaves the only scenario that he isolated the, the patternless individuals out of the gene pool. So when he imported them, of course, he looked at the animals and he's like, those are the best looking animals to me. And so he kept those animals. And um, by isolating them out of the gene pool, of course, all the other animals in the hobby look like normal Azurius, you know, the typical spotted Azurius. However, a lot of the, the F1 Watleys I have come across, they look almost patternless or even fine spot. If we start going down that line, not totally patternless, they still have some spots. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to say he line bred them when at the time he wasn't really into dark frogs. And at the time he was keeping large obligates. He's keeping a lot of questionable histrionica and some sylvatica and who knows what other obligates he's working with down at that time. But of course, Jack Wally was, was that kind of guy. He was, he was getting whatever animals he wanted some way or another. And of course, when, when Jack Wally has these animals that are patternless, of course the offspring are going to look like their parents. So we can make an argument, oh, they're line bred, because we call them Watley line. However, they haven't been inbred for four or five generations to look like that. No, they just happen to look like their parents. And that's, that's not something new. Most offspring look like their parents. So I was just going to add that caveat there. What are your thoughts on, so, and I, I don't want to name any names, but some larger vendors who sell frogs under the moniker of the Watley line. What do you think about that, about how many of these frogs that are labeled Watley line that actually are of that lineage as opposed to some that might not be? I mean, do you think that there's any, like, any real way of quantifying what these certain lines are and if other ones might have just been, um, you know, like aberrant individuals that got named the Watley line and then made it into that company's breeding program? You know, it's possible that some people are doing that just to make a quick buck. However, another thing that it's possible that they're saying that the Watley line to try to insinuate that this is an unrelated lineage to add stock to the other Azurius in the hobby. And that's also another big misconception. It's probably about 90% of Azurius in the hobby, you could say, are Watley line. Because I have talked to the biggest players that are producing Azurius now. I've talked with Zach Brinks, who works at Josh's Frogs, and asked about their stock that they're breeding. They have told me that they, they have Azurius from a, a bunch of different places. But, and, of course, they're working with the Watley line. But even that they're, quote-unquote, normal Azurius they're selling, they have bred with the Watley line. So they've produced Watley line Azurius themselves and then bred them with some of their own stock. So if you're getting normal Azurius from Josh's Frogs, they could already be part Watley line. There's nothing wrong with that. They're still Azurius. They're not crossbred or anything. But also, Patrick Neighbors, who was producing Azurius for many, many years, um, he acquired animals directly from Jack Wally. In fact, his first pair was one of the pairs imported by Jack Wally. But then again, you'd also get Azurius directly from Jack Wally and breathe in with his dog. 
So the neighbor's line already has Wally line Azurias in it. Sean Stewart did the same thing, who also produced a lot of Azurias. Um, he also got animals directly from Jack Wally and bred them with his dog. So a lot of Azurias in the hobby, they already have Wally line in them. I just want to add that in there because some people think, oh, I'm going to get Wally line and I'm going to breed it with the other Azurias and think that I'm outcrossing, but you're really not. You could be if you know what the other animal is. Like if you know if it's from Bertram stock, from Studgart, from Baltimore Aquarium, you could actually say if there's an actual outcross, but we don't really know that. And most often it's not an outcross. Um, there are some big players that are producing a lot of actual Wally Azurius, like Josh's Frogs. So if someone is selling them at a show, it could actually be Wally line. I wouldn't be too surprised. Here's a question for you. I mean, all things being equal, I've seen frogs labeled as Watley line having a more expensive price than your typical luxurious. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it really is the same frog. And there's, there's no difference in the ability to produce one versus the other. Do you think that the whole Watley line thing might be being used as a marketing tool when it's really no difference than any other type of morph of a certain locale or whatnot? Yeah, it could be a marketing term for sure. I mean, the animals that look like what you think of when you think of Watley line, you know, the paddle and Cesareus, those are quite rare to produce. So you can produce them out of normal Azurius. And you can also produce a lot of normal looking Azurius out of those patternless animals as well. So even if you do get the Watley line and you breed two patternless animals together, you could be producing a lot of normals. So you're kind of just like getting the pick of the litter then. That's that's what you're saying, that's right? It. Okay. At the end of the day, like if you're paying a higher price tag, you should be getting an animal that looks different. I I think it's kind of it's kind of lame when uh, certain vendors, I'm not going to name a name specifically here, but they do charge a lot more for Wally Line Azurius, but you don't know what you're getting. And when you get them in the mail, you could be getting some normal Azurius. And I mean, you can't. This animal isn't even an outcross per se. So what are you really charging more money for? It's not a unique lineage. So that I do think should be frowned upon. They're just selling normal Azurias. They shouldn't be asking more money for it. Yeah, I'm just coming at, from, coming at it from the perspective of a potential buyer. Say you have a buyer who says, all right, well, I like this line. I like the, the visual appeal of this. I want to continue to breed them myself and then perpetuate that. And then you get two individuals. And then, like you said, they reproduce and they give off normal offspring I can imagine that person being a little bit, uh, a little bit twisted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably around the three-year mark, and then they sell off their pair to someone else, and then they get some thumbnails. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like, I mean, that's that's another thing now is, I guess there's 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 two there's two worlds to this whole dart frog thing. There's the world where people really take it seriously and put a tremendous amount of effort. I mean whether they do it under questionable circumstances or not, but people who take the whole matter very, very seriously and pay a lot of attention to where a locale comes from and what lineage it came from, all that, as opposed to people who were more casual in the hobby, like the people who were here today and gone tomorrow. What effect do those people have on the genetic integrity of something like Azurius? Because let's just say that you have a beginner by 
bunch of frogs labeled as Watley line gets some gets a, gets some offspring. Nothing remarkable. They all kind of look the same. Sells those off, and then finally maybe sells off the pair or whatever. And those just kind of go off into like oblivion. You know what I mean? They can go to anyone's collection, or they they might end up, you know, not being bred or or whatever. How does that whole unorganized aspect of the hobby how do you think that affects genetics of azurius as opposed to people who put a lot more effort into keeping records and keeping track of everything i think it has a big impact on all dart frogs because as you look around there are not very many people who have been in the hobby for 10 years or more and so what i found when i was tracking down lineages of azurius most of the lineages you find are traced back to the people that have been in the hobby the longest. You know, Patrick Neighbors, Sean Stewart, all the big players. But there were a lot of people back in the day when Jack Waltley first imported Azurius. You know, he imported about 40 to 50 specimens. I was able to figure out where about 10 to 15 of those specimens ended up. But where did all the others go? So there were a bunch of other animals, wild caught, that I'm assuming just random hobbyists at the time we're like, wow, this blue frog for $400. I'm going to buy some of those and start breeding them. But where did they end up? I can't track down lineages from all, all 40 to 50 of those, those animals. I can only find them from you know the people who've been in the longest. And so that, that, that tends to be a problem. And I kind of realize that now when I, when I sell all spring. I don't think a lot of people think about it like this. But most of the time when you sell the frogs, they're probably a dead end. Even if the person were to breed it a couple more times, maybe breed it once or twice, you're probably not going to know where that animal is in eight years. The animal should be alive in eight years. You know, things happen, animal gets sick. These animals can live a long time. How many of us do we really know where those animals are that we sold 10 years ago? And it tends to just be the person that was in the hobby the longest that kept their animals. And that's how, you know, my, the parents of some of my Azurias would be probably 26 years old now so yeah that's saying something when it's the old animals that they're making the big impact yeah that's an interesting angle i never would have even really thought about it like that i just i I always wonder where like where the ripples end you know what i mean is it like because i i have a lot of frogs that i got from patrick neighbors like when i first when I got back into the hobby, when I actually was serious, when I wanted to keep something besides just erratus, I wanted to make sure that I was getting like good quality frogs. And I, I got quite a few from Patrick Neighbors, and he, he was great. He was really, um, really helpful. I had a couple of issues here and there, and he talked me through it, and that was great. But I'm always curious about people who have frogs, and then they, they get out there, they have over, overflow, they, they end up in pet shops, or they end up at expos, and then... Do you think that there's ever a point where some of those frogs get back into the hands of like the, the serious people, like the, the, the long-term people, meaning like say you have a breeder sells to an individual, that individual has a couple of pairs, breeds those off to a third person, third person sells them off to a pet shop or an expo, that person sells them. Like, is there any, I mean, I'm saying it in the most convoluted way possible, but does it ever, does it ever double back on itself, do you think? Yeah, I believe that has happened with uh, with a buddy of mine that he was talking about Adelphobates galactonatus, and I believe 
Patrick Neighbors was responsible for like one of the first imports of I think it might have been Reds or something. Well, he when this buyer was questioning Patrick Neighbors, he was like recent. He was trying to buy some Galactonatus from Patrick Neighbors. And when he's asked the like the lineage about him, he said Patrick Neighbors said something along the lines of, oh, I don't know, they came from Sean Stewart. And then when, when they asked Sean Stewart, Sean Stewart said that he got his from Patrick Neighbors. So it has happened before where if someone gets, you know, doesn't stops keeping the animals for a while, it gets back into them. And, it, you know, it's mainly came back to Patrick Neighbors because he was responsible for probably the entire import of Reds. They all probably trace back to him. Other than I have heard some rumors of some new lineages of Galactonatus coming into the hobby, you know, the ones that are already here. So red, yellow, orange. I've heard that possibly recently more of those have come in, but yeah, so it does happen. Yeah. I always wonder just, you put so much effort in trying to maintain the integrity of something and then it ends up, I don't know. It's just, it's just such a, it's yeah. such a rabbit hole. You can go down trying to track out the lineages of everything. And it's, it's not just dark frogs either. It's also, interestingly enough, there was, um, some interest in figuring out the genetic identity of different locales of Panther chameleon. And apparently the, the genetic integrity of a lot of the Panther look, uh, Panther chameleon locales is like seriously contaminated or whatever you want to call it, just from going back and forth between different people and being mislabeled and you know yeah. it's it's crazy that that is unfortunate to me because recently has come out that some of the panther chameleons locales are actually being separated into like species or subspecies so that's why it's very important in the hobby that i i believe we keep them separate especially azurius because there's still an argument to be made that it could be its own thing not necessarily a tinctorious that's another rabbit hole but being the passion of mine that's uh, i've gone down that rabbit hole and so that's why i'm still kind of on the fence about calling it a locale yeah and you have to ask yourself how much i mean you mentioned before about doing genetic testing and i don't know if anybody's done that or if there's going to be a um i mean that that stuff is expensive and involved but I want. It would be interesting if we someone did a really thorough genetic breakdown of all the Azurias and actually did find that they were different species. Or let's let's just say, for argument's sake, that some of the different morphs, like fine spot or whatever. I mean, maybe they were wild populations that were were visually and genetically distinct, and then somehow got lumped together just because they look similar into the hobby. Who knows? You know. Yeah, actually, with Azurius, I can I can go down that rabbit hole because I do have some good information regarding that. So there is a rumor that fine spot Azurius, you know, they're maybe from one forest island, and then all the normal Azurius are from another forest island. However, according to Jack Cover, he has told me explicitly you can see them side by side in the wild. You can see normals and you can see fine spots, and so we have that statement from an individual who has actually been there. And there's also I can also say all the Azurias that I've come across, they've all been imported from one guy in Suriname. And so I've actually reached out to him and said, hey, have you done this and that? Mainly because I wanted photos of some of the original specimens. Because that's, you know, that's, that's really fascinating to me. Couldn't get photos out of the guy, but I do know they've all come from the same exact forest island. There's actually four forest islands. Some people say that Azurias only comes from one forest island. 
That's not true. There's actually four. However, all of them in the hobby have come from the type locality. So if you were to pull it up on Google Maps, you'll see four different little forest islands. Azorius that we have in the hobby comes from the one that's shaped like an upside down T. That's the type locality. What do you think about these areas in the long term, like these particular forest islands? Do you think that they, I mean, you mentioned there was a rumor a while back that they had been burned down, but do you think that these are going to be able to last for the I don't think so, no. It scares me a lot because I would encourage a lot of listeners to actually look up a map of Suriname and actually look at the Cipollowini Savannah. Now, the Cipollowini Savannah sticks out like a sore thumb. And it's because the Cipollowini Savannah is really young. It's actually not natural, per se. So people think that the Cipollowini Savannah was actually man-made. So these indigenous tribes, still to this day, they they routinely burn the local area. And so that's where the rumor came out that the type locality of Azores is burned down. I don't know if maybe it was like a El Nino year or something like that, where it was really dry. And maybe somehow rumors got started that the fires got too big and it burned down the whole type locality. But to this day, you, you can even pull it up on Google Maps and you can see areas where it's been burned. And it's like right there, right beside the Azores type locality. So with the way the planet's changing, if it does get really hot and dry there, just one bad year and the whole area could go up in flames. So I really want to go down there and actually see Azarius in the wild while I still can. So I plan to do that within a couple of years. That's got to be interesting. I, I don't know anybody who's been to Suriname, or if I do, I, we never really talk about it. But yeah, I, I've, I know people who've seen, obviously, Costa Rica, Peru, Bolivia, but I don't know any, and Colombia. I don't know of anybody who's actually seen live dart frogs in Suriname so you'd, you'd be the first if you go you yeah. gotta you gotta come back on the show and give me a full report yeah it's not too hard to see a lot of the sanctorious locales because if you look at a list of the airstrips in Suriname they all got really interesting names like there's Olamari um there's a the true Cipollowini it was actually found on the expedition to collect Azarius originally but I think it's just called the Cipollowini airstrip so there's a lot of these airstrips literally named after Tinctorious locales. So you can probably just go right to that airstrip. And that's where I speculate a lot of these locales have been collected. Just fly right there and you can see them. Azorius would be way more involved in order to get there. Do you think the names of those locales might be like, um, I guess a good example is Green Tree Python locales. that They're named after the, the port of, of export. So if a particular locale came out of a certain port, that's the name. Oh God, I, I can't remember all the names of the different green tree python locales. But you think that might have something to do with it as well? Just the spot that they were originally flown out of. Yeah, I really think so. Especially for some of the the locales that are still routinely imported. So it, it'd be really easy if if one of the exporters down in Suriname's like, hey, I need a I need to sell this many frogs in order to break even or something. However, they got to do to make ends meet down there. Let's fly to this airstrip. Let's just fly right there. And they can probably collect animals immediately. It'd be super easy. Just collect, collect these animals right nearby because it's really forested nearby. There's just one little airstrip in the middle of a bunch of trees. So they didn't have to walk too far to find some animals. And that's probably where 
a lot of specimens came from, or maybe even if they weren't collected right at the airstrip, um, the collectors met the indigenous people at the airstrip that actually sold animals to them. Like this could have happened with, you know, it's not linked to an airstrip for today, but this could be linked to the Qatari River, how the Qatari River specimens got their name wasn't actually collected anywhere near the Qatar River. It was just where the exporters got the animals from some indigenous people. But who knows where the animals came from? Could be something like that as well. Yeah, it's kind of like, I guess, if you were to buy something, like if you were to buy a car from someone on Craigslist and they met you in, you know, the, the, the parking lot of like Lowe's or something like that, you'd be like, oh, you know, this is the Lowe's line car or whatever. It's, you know, yeah. just, just a, yeah. a, co- a common meeting place name. The wall, the Walmart line, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the Walmart. Yeah, frog. we'll sell some dart, sell some dart frogs to each other at the Walmart parking lot. That'll be the Walmart <laughs> line. Forget the Wally. Walmart's the Walmart's the new thing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we're kind of winding down to the end, but um, you, I mean, you, you mentioned the Qatari River. Can you give us maybe a little taste of what you have in mind for um, doing some research on that locale? Um, so there's a lot of mystery involved with Qatari River. So. I, I hate to say it, but there's when it comes down to it, we're not going to really know for sure. However, I will share some information in my article that helps people to come to their own conclusions. Now, there's possibly some hybrids floating around. So when we compare lines of Katari River, we're not comparing like to like anymore. They're completely different things. And I've also heard, I, I hear a lot of things from a lot of different people. And I don't want to say too much because I haven't corroborated this information just yet. However, I have heard that the Qatari River name was just a random name applied to some mystery frogs that they had no clue where they came from. And there's also been, I see, came across some photos of some animals. I talked to Troy Goldberg a lot. He's kind of like, he's kind of like the man when it comes to Qatari Rivers. He's the one that's kept them around in the hobby, like solely up to him who's kept Qatar rivers around in the hobby. So I'm constantly sharing rumors with him and we're constantly speculating, but there's photos online of some animals that were in, in Europe many years ago that were bought in France, but they were called British Guyana. Now British Guyana, the country is only known of blue tinctorious from that country, but these particular specimens in the photos look exactly like the Qatari river that we keep in the hobby. So, I'm led to believe that these are the only tinctorious in the hobby that we have from British Guyana versus all the other tinctorious are either from Brazil, French Guyana, or Suriname. That's a pretty, pretty big deal. And there's a lot of unique traits when it comes to Qatari River. So it would make sense if they're from a different country. Yeah, it would stand to reason. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of these frogs, you know, where they come from, it's not like, um, I mean, obviously, people are going to want to keep accurate records and government is going to be some government um, oversight and whatnot. But I mean, it's still not the it's still not the refined science that it would be in, uh, you know, in other situations. So uh, there's always going to be some some questionable situations, I guess. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that the Suriname allows export of Dendrobates tinctorius. Like you can go on CITES records and you can see what the export quotas are. Now, British Guyana does have an export quota. So you can legally export animals from British Guyana. Now, I have no clue why we're not getting any tinctorius out of British Guyana. All I see coming in these days are like 
a bunch of different cobalts. Um, I've seen some yellowbacks, citronellas, but we're mainly talking about animals from Suriname. So it's wild to me. I wonder if some of the Europeans, they're actually getting animals out of British Guiana. Not according to what I've heard, though. Who knows? You know, I feel like the trends, you know, trends come and go. So it's, it's, so, it's so hard to tell, you know, like, um, I could very easily see like certain species coming in and then just ballooning and pop in popularity becoming really, really common. And then maybe fizzling out again, coming in from another country. Who knows? I mean, maybe if there's just a bigger demand in Europe and they're going there, why would they, you know what I mean? Why would they bother sending them yeah. here if there's no, if there's no interest and then maybe people in Europe will get bored of them and then they'll start sending them here. Who knows? Yeah. And then there's the problem of, you know, there's blue frogs coming out of British Guiana. We already have Azurius. Yeah, All of, yeah. Er, everyone who loves frogs, they want Azurius. So there's almost little need to be collecting more blue frogs out of British Guiana. That's true too. Yeah. Plus, you have to think about who's going to want these. I mean, I guess if you were going to export in large numbers, you're going to want to go to someone who's going to want large numbers. So, I mean, from what I understand, the export quantities of dart frogs compared to other species is actually like relatively low. So we're talking like tens yeah. of thousands to hundreds of thousands versus like millions. So there might, yeah. who knows, there might not be any money in it, you know? Because, I mean, realistically, yeah. that's the goal there is for people to make some kind of a profit. If I remember correctly, the export quota from British Guyana for Tinctorius was like 500 specimens. So incredibly low. So like someone, like an exporter in British Guyana who's wanting to sell animals to make money, they can't sell a whole lot of Tinctorius legally. So, like, where would they go? So, if they were selling them, these are such small numbers, they're probably just diluted instantly once they get into the country, going to random pet stores, buying up these wild-caught random frogs, and we'd never know where they came from, and there's not a whole lot floating around. So, yeah. Yeah, and then you got to ask yourself, does anything come in unexpectedly that makes its way into... The, the breeding pool, you know what I mean? Like, does anything, mm-hmm. does anything come in just like, I mean by accident, like under the radar. Like when I was, when I was talking to Devin Edmonds, he, he did the paper about the history of every locale and every species going back to, I think it was like the, the seventies. We talked about some of the confusion that also happened during shipments, meaning a certain species might've been mislabeled and made its way into the U.S., not because someone purposely tried to hide it, but it was just mislabeled as a different species or it was misidentified. So you got to ask yourself, like, do Azurias come in from another spot or somehow, and they're a fresh lineage? You know what I mean? Like, did they did they come in from one country by way of another? Which, I mean, look, that probably really does happen. So who knows? There could be some, you know, some interesting surprises out there that we're not even aware of. Yeah, if it did happen with Azurius, it would be in their favor. Like, if it came in under some other random name, we'd be able to know with a pretty good possibility whether or not it's Azurius, because Azurius has a lot of unique characteristics that are not shared by a lot of other Tinctorius locales. That's why they are originally their own species. Like, the biggest trait I can share right now is, you know, like, the black line? Like, if, if you can picture a citronella, there's, like, these black lines that extend from, from the vent up the sides of the back about midway you know those back lines azurius doesn't have that all other tinctorius locales do except katari river there's just a few 
select few locales that don't have that black line. Azores has like a dark blue version in some specimens, but they don't have that black line there. So if they were to come into the country, we'd be able to distinguish them from new rivers, which could come in. Like I just was showed a photo from a from a exporter in Suriname. He had this huge bin of just new rivers. They're like sitting on a banana leaf or something. It was just some exporter's place and he was filled with all these new rivers. But the new rivers have that black line. So we would know, we'd be able to distinguish them with a relatively high confidence level. Well, that's a good tip for people to look out for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Nick, before, you know, we're, we're at the end here and we're going to finish up, but, um, if anybody wanted to find you online and read your articles and um, get to know more about Tinctoris, how could they find you and how could they find your work? Uh, the best place to go would be my website, tinktank.com. That's T-I-N-C-T-A-N-K.com. And then I also have an Instagram where I share a lot of photos. That's at tink underscore tank. Awesome. That's, that's it. Yeah. Well, listen, Nick, I want to thank you for sharing all this. It's funny because something like Azurias we take for granted because it's such a common species, but it's almost like, I guess the fact that it's so popular may have added to its, um, I guess it's, it's, I hate to use this term overbreeding, but I guess things that might've led to some confusion in terms of, uh, you know, how to best preserve its genetic integrity from the beginning, but interesting. It was a very, very interesting read, so... Well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. I, I started reading this. Stuff. I it, look, people, you have to read this. I mean, the article it's not super long, and I read it, and it's there's so much information. I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow. I'm like, I, <laughs> I never knew. I mean, I heard rumors, but I never knew how actually involved it was getting these things into people's hands for the past fifty years. But yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, all right, everyone. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. Um, this was a great episode. And, um, you know, I'm trying to get some more content like this. So if you guys know anybody who's got some, like, really specific experience with a specific locale or a specific species, uh, give them a, person, a, a referral to me. Uh, I'd like to hear what the person has to say. And uh, moving forward, you know, other than that, like I said, I'd like to get the content like this out there as well. Interesting stuff that kind of, uh, kind of surprises me and, and I'm sure plenty of you guys too. So... All right, other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again next week.